You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Kev Kyatt here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In this episode, we're talking about talent and staff development. Like everything else, we are now completely dominated by COVID-19 implications. And so we're looking at that with respect to how it influences the recruitment to key roles, how you manage your staff and your volunteers remotely and look after them well. We're talking about finances and the thorny question of not making payroll. How do leaders cope with that? And what are leaders supposed to do about managing poor performance? Now, everything is so different to normal. How do we interpret performance? What does that actually mean? All that and more over the next 59 minutes, give or take. It's time for me to welcome everyone to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is the first of 12 calls uh, rotating through four different topics. And this is the first one, talent and staff development. And we have our esteemed panel. I will call them just to introduce themselves very briefly. We have Arkella. Hello, welcome. Again, my name is Arkella Hartgrove and I am based in Houston, Texas. And my business is Epic Collaborative Advisors and we partner with nonprofits and in for-profit and nonprofit businesses around human resources strategies, leadership development, diversity and inclusion. And uh, I'm a professor at University of Houston uh, downtown here in Houston. Great. And Dana? Hi, I'm Dana Corey Litwin. I'm a CBA, uh, which stands for Certified in Volunteer Administration. And I consult on volunteer engagement, community engagement, volunteer management, best practices. I've primarily worked in the fields of environmental conservation, but I've also worked with food security and uh, youth and at-risk uh, after-school kids programs. And I'm the past president of ALIVE, our professional association, Association of Leaders in Volunteer Engagement. I just turned off uh, six years of the board. I'm involved with founding a multi-sector really umbrella alliance, then national alliance for volunteer engagement, which is moving beyond the volunteer management sector to other sectors that have anything to do with volunteerism. And it's really great timing that that organization has gotten off the ground uh, in the last couple of years. Let me tell, let me tell you, but I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Kev, for having me. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Derek? Good afternoon. I'm Derek Fulton, and I proudly serve as the regional vice president with City Year. Um, City Year, we are a national nonprofit that uh, AmeriCorps program that focuses on serving 
with school districts in 29 cities uh, domestically and two international locations. And we deploy 18 to 25 young, 25 year old young idealists into communities and schools that are under-resourced and typically marginalized communities. So, um, and myself personally, um, I've been fortunate to serve in a leadership capacity at multiple nonprofits um, across my career. I currently sit in Cleveland, Ohio. I've been with communities and schools. I've been with the organization here in Cleveland. Um, I started my career as a, a child welfare social worker um, and continued really dig into supporting communities and helping people to realize um, their dreams and what they aspire to. And happy to be here. Great. Okay, Brian. Okay. Uh, so I'm Brian Broadbent. I'm the CEO of a nonprofit called Business Volunteers Unlimited. So we work in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, about 120 businesses and 800 some nonprofits annually. Professionally, I was a uh, I was with Arthur Anderson at Accenture 27 years. For a number of those years, I was a global HR director for portions of Accenture. And um, so a lot of the HR questions are popped up or right up my alley. I do a lot of succession planning for nonprofits uh, as one of the things I do at BVU. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you, I, I think I'm back. There you I are. <laughs> okay, great. So it's Jody Weiss, and really great to be here with you all. I lead nonprofit and higher education practice over at Corn Ferry in D.C. I've been in the New York office for years on Miami and almost the last three in D.C. I've been at Corn Ferry for, gosh, I think about 15 years now. And prior to that, my background was in publishing, completely outside of nonprofit. I was on the editorial side. I work predominantly with boards and nonprofit leadership. We hire executive directors, CEOs, chief development officers, as well as functional leaders throughout national, regional, chapter-based um, nonprofits. We've had so many interesting conversations these days about the attributes of future leaders and how a put one must be to lead to a pandemic and other disasters. So really looking forward to our discussion today. That's great. Thanks. Okay, so that's our panel. You can see we've got a wide range of experience. Uh, I just want to give a, a shout out also to Brian and his colleagues at uh, Business Volunteers Unlimited who've partnered with me to make sure that each of these podcasts calls uh, works well over the next 12 weeks. So I'm grateful for their support. The way this is going to work is we have some questions that we're going to go through over the next uh, sort of 40 minutes. What I would invite all the participants to do is to make comments in the chat. If you've got a specific example or a particular feature of your own situation that is relevant to the conversation and you want some input from the panel, please, by all means, put that in the chat and we'll try and pick it up as we go. And then at the, uh, the last sort of 20 to 15 minutes, we will open up to further questions, assuming we have that much time. But we'll see how we get through these questions. Okay, so the first one is a question about uh, how the situation has affected existing processes. So the first question is, we were midway through a recruitment for a critical post that we're going to need as soon as possible when everything ground to a halt. How should we manage this process from here? And I'm going to ask Arkella to answer that one directly. So this happened to a couple of my clients. Um, they are in the nonprofit space as well. And so in the middle of recruiting, we went through the process of doing virtual interviews via Zoom. And um, they decided to put the positions on hold until after we get past the, the stay-at-home work order 
And um, so what I did was I reached back out to those candidates who we had interviewed, the status of the recruitment process. We would follow back up with them. We were still interested. They totally understood, you know, what was happening and um, agreed to wait, follow back up with us. So definitely if you're in the process of uh, recruiting, definitely still to utilize the, the virtual, especially with individuals who you are excited about and want to move forward in the process and communicate. And a lot of times everyone understands what's happening. Um, so the key here is to communicate and still kind of move forward with the process as, as much as you can. Okay. So yeah, some, you know, go ahead, Jody. So I was going to add to that, you know, interestingly, if you do choose to call to search, we're advising, our, you know, uh, on the Cornfairy side, we are keeping close touch with the candidates and we're getting to know them better. So you can do virtual coffee chats with them. You can do virtual lunch. It's an opportunity. In, in our world, we think of top talent. If we don't use them for one search, we're absolutely going back to them for another opportunity. So we make a big investment. So it's a great time to get to, to know the candidate. But what I'd say is we've recommended, um, we're in the middle of dozens of CEO searches. We're keeping going. And we made an investment the first week this happened. We do our first round video interviews anyway. So most of the boards and search committees we work with are well-versed. We train everyone. We do trial runs, how to run an effective panel video interview. We sit on it. So, you know, we, we troubleshoot. And this time we made direction sheets. It just came to the forefront with COVID and we've tried to give clients everything they need to keep going. Um, we've even done in the past two weeks final presentations. It's been really incredible because oh, we had three offers go out for CEO roles last week and now we're trying to think about what is virtual onboarding need and how we can use the next month effectively. So some organizations do have to halt. It's a funding issue, but you can move forward with it and you can run a successful interview process virtually. Okay, great. We've had a, a question in from Deborah Johnson on the chat about critical positions and how to onboard when no one is in the office. Derek, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? I work for Cityo remotely, and a lot of our work is done from a remote perspective. So given that I'm in the leadership position, I do a lot of onboarding from a remote perspective. So one of the things that we recently discussed is given... Um, this COVID crisis, it can actually, we can fine tune our onboarding process and they really dig in. So I would suggest when you think of onboarding, think of it as you're onboarding the individual and because you are not in your physical office space, that does not prohibit you from the onboarding process. So given that we have this technology and they have these opportunities, I would challenge you to think of it in a, in a creative way that the only thing that's limiting you is you don't have that in-person connection, but you will be able to conduct a lot of the exercises that you would have normally done anyway, because that's still that one-to-one -one interaction, or you can engage other individuals. In our onboarding at City Year, because we work all over the country, we utilize technology. The technology we're utilizing now, we've already been utilizing Teams and Zoom and all these fun tools because we have multiple people all over the country who we engage on onboarding. I would suggest you think of it in a way of this is an opportunity and really the only thing prohibiting you is you don't have your physical office space. You can still engage all the individuals, customers, whomever, whatever your business is, you can engage those individuals in that onboarding process utilizing the technology that we have. I'll just add to that. We're finding that not having to fly all over, everyone has an extra few hours in their day 
And so you can be more thoughtful with those internal virtual meetings. Who doesn't want to skip a flight and, and do something from their home? So we, it's been positive for us. That's great. Okay, the next one was around just flipping us 180 degrees from an organization looking to recruit. And I want to ask Jody to lead on this question, which is, as a nonprofit leader, should I start or continue searching for my next role? Yeah, I think it's really great timing. I just have been getting my head around this for LinkedIn for the past two weeks because they've been talking about it too. I think it's great timing because you get a little bit more reflection time. We're home. People are more thoughtful. They're starting to assess what matters to me. What am I, what do I really need? Does my job fulfill me? Am I in the right role right now? And because everybody's accessible, whether it's on LinkedIn or email, you can reach people. So if you want to have these conversations to explore new opportunities, um, I think most people in recruiting organizations, Corn Ferry, we're all speaking to people, doing some career coaching a few hours a week, letting people reach out to us and talk about what's out there, what's next. So I think it's a really thoughtful time to start assessing your career. You have a little bit more time, you know, depending. Uh, you know, I know people have families and so forth at home. But I think it's good timing. I would just say we're telling everyone you never want to bail on your current organization in a crisis. And so you can look right now. It doesn't mean you'd make a transition. You're just starting the process. You might not want to actually make a transition for two or three months, you know, see your organization through this. But I think it's good timing. But a nonprofit executive search, what, what would you say is a standard time frame for people who are thinking of making that transition? And is that time frame extended now because of that crisis and that desire not to bail? We love to think of it as 90 days. It's not a reality. We work with, you know, search committee boards. We typically travel all the time to be with them. So it's more along the lines of five or six months. That said, the timing is right. If you kick off a search now, if you start getting involved in a process, hopefully in two or three months you can meet in person. So I think it's a great time now to do the research, do your homework, assess skill gaps. You know, what would you have to do? What kind of training would you need to move into a certain role? You know, so I think that you have a good runway if you start now. Okay. And then, again, moving back to the from the organizational side, Brian, do you want to comment on succession and how organizations should be thinking about that. It's probably the furthest thing from people's minds, and a lot of organizations put it off anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, But how does the current situation focus the mind for, say, an executive director or a board member in terms of succession? Right. So, yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, there are a couple of ways to look at succession. And just looking at the people that are on this call, a lot of you know this. But you've got two levels of succession. One is interim succession. God forbid something happens to somebody, but they're out for a period of time, month, two months, what have you. And then obviously long-term succession. Hitting each, you would think that this period would accent the need for succession planning. And I don't want to be morbid, but obviously with Corona and a number of CEOs over the age of 60 and so on, it's more of an at-risk group. But before that, 50% of CEOs were planning to leave their post within a five-year period. And that's probably a national average that we have all the time. But only 27% of nonprofits have formal written succession plans. That's a national statistic. And so what we're encouraging people to do is, you know, take a hard look at succession and what they've got. And it's not just the CEO. It's also those C-levels underneath or the senior executives under that, that you need to have solid plans. 
And those plans include all the things you would, you would think of, you know, list your key responsibilities on an interim basis, who's going to do each of those things. And then if somebody decides to retire, resign, what have you, who are the potential long-term successors internally and externally? And get a point of view of grading them out, how prepared they are to take on those jobs. And that's kind of the, the top of it. The next part is more uh, the leadership characteristics you're looking for. What are the cultural implications and capabilities you want from a leader depending on the type of job that they have? And then for people who are internal, what training and development are you going to uh, have prepared to close capability gaps? This is a, it's always an important time to do it, but this has been, I think, accented even more right now. And so um, we would really encourage people to take a hard look at it. Okay, thank you for that. Anyone want to jump in on that from the panel? The only thing I'll add to that, given the city is a national organization and we have 29 executive directors across the, the country, we also have been looking at the individuals because of uh, what Brian mentioned, not wanting to be more, but because of Corona, we've been looking at if that executive director has to transition because of illness or if leadership or if people are working directly with the core members. We've really started looking at because of the illness and how fast it's moving, how do you keep the program overall, not just the leadership aspect, but the overall program moving along. Um, that's been critical. And it's we, we have work to do in that area. It's, it's actually elevated that. Yeah, it's easy to assume that a, a federalized or corporate structure with a lot of local uh, branches, if you will, even though they're independent organizations, would have a, a ready answer to that. But it's, it's never quite as easy as that, is it? <laughs> More challenging, actually. Add on to something Derek was just mentioning. The other thing is you want to try to have more than one person that knows some aspect of the job. It's always good to have multiple people so you don't have all your eggs in one basket on succession. Right. Okay, great. Um, we've mentioned this already. I'm going to go straight to it. The next question is, one of my staff has tested positive for COVID-19. Do I insist that all the other staff get tested, even if they're asymptomatic? How do I handle this situation? Arkella, do you want to chime yeah. in on that? One thing is definitely to, uh, and I'll tell clients, it's like they were not medical professionals, but, you know, definitely to be sympathetic and someone tests positive, we make sure we're communicating that to all staff and just to let them know that someone within our team has tested positive, especially if they're still working and they're essential personnel and they've been working closely together, then let them know that, again, someone has been has tested positive and if they've been in close contact, according to the CDC, requirements, then they need to leave the workplace immediately and be in contact with their medical provider and um, going into self-quarantine. Um, and then two, just communicating with everyone that this has happened. And what I've been seeing uh, within groups is that they have shut down if they need to and everyone goes into quarantine, especially if it's multiple people. But that's kind of what the direction is, and then having them to go and check out with their medical providers. Dana, do you want to weigh in from a volunteer's perspective or staff more generally? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Completely agree with Carl's point. And it's really your whole team. And thinking of, of not the division between staff and volunteers, but your entire team, whether they're paid or unpaid, full-time, part-time, if they've come into any physical contact with this person. And also understanding that, you know, we're speaking from a lot of different areas in the country. I'm in San Francisco, which is on a pretty successful shelter in place. So not just the CDC guidelines, but your local safety measures, or in our cases, city orders, citable, enforceable police 
looking for people out and about orders um, are also in effect and keeping those local legalities in mind. But communication is key. And really the leaders or the deciders in the organization understanding that it's an entire team of paid and unpaid people perhaps that need the same kind of communication and not two two different sets of information or two different standards. And if everyone's getting, you know, remote temperature taken as part of a process, which I know is happening in some food banks uh, with both National Guard and volunteers working, that that process is applied uh, fairly and consistently to all, to all of your team members who have been in or are going to be in any physical proximity to each other or to clients. But this, to me, seems like a, a great example of why you want to onboard your volunteers the same way that you had your exactly. paid staff, yeah. so that they are familiar with all the policies and procedures, because those organizations that don't do that, and then suddenly they have to speak to loads of volunteers, and the volunteers have said, well, I've never even seen the policy. I didn't know that one right. existed, because they were not onboarded in the same way as paid staff. I mean, I was, I think it is a good rule of thumb and, and you're, you're more of an expert. You can correct me if I'm wrong is that volunteers are just like paid staff that they don't yeah. have a paycheck. <laughs> so they need all the same sort yeah. of levels of support and so on. Yeah, it, exactly. That's a great point, Kevin. Uh, building on that, uh, volunteer is a pay cat. My HR friends on the panel will nod their heads. Volunteer is a pay category. It's not a job title. So it's really yeah, about onboarding yeah. all of your team members with their job title. And again, it's your team. Some are paid, some are unpaid, some are full-time, some are part-time, some are remote, some are in person. Whatever that looks like, it's your entire team uh, should have the same policies, best practices, health practices, safety measures in place and understand that they're all in this together. That's really a, a core point and really important for leadership to understand that if they're making decisions about volunteers or volunteer programs, they must, must have the actual volunteer administrative staff paid staff or anyone paid or unpaid who's managing other volunteers in on that decision. And, and I know there's colleagues and friends of mine on the call who had that happen to them where decisions were made at a higher level, either about health policy or suspending or stopping volunteer programs without the expert input of themselves or their other team members who are really running those programs. And that's a, a ter really poor strategic decision to make right now. All right. We've had a contribution from Karina on the okay. chat for those of you who do not have it open. And I'll, I'll just read it very quickly. Organization hires a professional sanitizing crew to deep clean the workspace where the person tested positive. Everyone that had direct or indirect contact mm -hmm. with that are placed on leave and do not report back for at least two weeks. So Karina is, was, was that a sort of knee jerk reaction or was that a sort of something in place? That's just a standard process right now. So you had that, you were, you had prepared, you had pandemic in your policies mm -hmm. and procedures. No, I think that was just coming from the county oh, recommendations. Right. Okay. And there was funding aside for that. I mean, okay. funding we, that was available. Uh, actually, I think you're very fortunate in that regard. Thank you for that. Um, okay, moving, moving just, on. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that also there's the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that talks about the paid sick leave. So a lot of organizations can definitely take advantage of that if they do have an employee who is ill due to COVID-19, that there's the paid sick leave regulation in there. So to check out the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. 
That's an ideal segue into the next question, which is a, a bit stark. But if uh, an organization is in a situation like this one, they'd say, we cannot make the payroll after next. So they know they're running out of cash. What do they do? Arkella, do you want to carry on with that? Definitely. So a number of organizations are being impacted financially. And so definitely if they can, I know it's many of the financial institutions are overwhelmed with the payroll protection program. Um, I even had a, a nonprofit that checked with one of their funders who was able to provide funding for them. And so check into those other resources um, that may be available. So funders may be given additional funding uh, during this time, check into the federal programs as well. And then unfortunately, sometimes it may be that you have to furlough people for a short period of time if necessary. So those are things to look into those different programmings. When it comes to furloughing, does the panel want to um, suggest some rules of thumb or ways that executives and boards should be thinking about when furlough is the most appropriate option? One thing I would suggest, if at all possible, that leadership starts first. So if you, those individuals who are making higher salaries, that you look to those individuals first and, and really take a deep dive into that. Because, uh, you know, we have frontline staff who are really providing the services, especially in our, when you work in the human services work that we do, I think that's critical. And if you have to do it broadly, everyone needs to participate, that it not be selective, that there be a policy in place that everyone is participating. I've, I've heard horror stories about furloughs being delivered and leadership is not participating, things of that nature. If it, if it leans in that direction, it should be all if you have to do it. And I would even go further, Derek, and say the leader should have a higher percentage of, of payroll impact, percentage impact mm-hmm. on there. Because I agree with you, that's a cultural element. Uh, we just had to implement a kind of a light furlough at BBU, but we notified people early. Uh, it's effective April 16th. It's going to be for two months. Some of the other things we're doing to keep things going are, are things that, Quilly, you mentioned, but like loans and things, because we're buying time. Uh, in this, we have a uh, modest endowment that's available. We're not going to tap it while the stocks are down. Uh, we're trying to buy it a little bit of time. And we think that makes a lot of sense. Just this is Ohio law, but you should know this, that um, I know this is a national call. But the furloughs are treated like a, a separation. So one of the questions we had is could employees use like vacation time to cover the furlough days uh, or um, sick time, you know, that type of thing. And the answer was your your policies will dictate it. And this is, again, in Ohio, but um, your policy manuals will dictate what you can do. And in our situation, employees can use vacation time to cover the furlough days to the extent they have it. They can't use paid time, uh, the uh, uh, sick time. Uh, that's not available to them. But we told them, even in our communication, we went full disclosure to explain exactly where we're financially, our cash reserve balance. And then we said, but the intent of the furlough is not to spend cash. So if you can if you could adhere to the furlough as a furlough, we'd sure appreciate it. And so that's the way we dealt with it. So good yeah. point there. There's some state variations that may apply in your particular case. Go ahead, Jody. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to add um, to what Brian said. Like we've had clients, you know, come to us about this and communicate early and often. If you can give your teams, whether it's a month or three weeks notice, walk them through. This is not a time to be ambiguous. Give them all the details discuss the financials with them, let them know what the future plan is, right? When we go back to work, what is the plan? When will they come back to work? And, you know, answer those questions and, and make yourself accessible um, as, as clearly as possible that you can communicate and as much as you can communicate, it's appreciated. Okay. 
The next question is, again, so going 180 degrees, we have lots of staff working additional extra hours under undue pressure, whether they're working from home or seen as essential and able to go into some sort of office. And we can probably not see a, a good time in the future when that extra burden will come to an end. What's the panel's advice on how best to support those staff who and be frustrated that some of their colleagues are 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 actually having nothing to do and and they're picking up the slack. So again, coming from a national organization, we're larger. Actually, a couple of our departments in our headquarters. So I'm part of the headquarters team. And what we actually did was, you just mentioned individuals who may have some extra time. Primarily, our sites are the ones that are really busy right now. The sites who are delivering services, trying to figure out how do they support school districts around virtual learning, getting in touch with families to engage with virtual learning, things of that nature. So we as support, as a support team, we actually developed a process to determine who has extra capacity. And we actually asked the sites to complete an assessment form of their own needs in response to our headquarters teams to be able to plug in and provide additional support to balance some of that um, overworked, if you will, um, so we are working on trying to figure out a way that we provide extra support to those areas where they're really being tapped from a capacity standpoint. And I would just say also from an empathy standpoint, I mean, these are very challenging times. We need to work together as a team. I'm very proud at City Year. We really put people first and we actually added more time uh, to people's um, vacation bank, if you will. It's called COVID personal time. And you, we're not asking anyone what they're taking it for. You just need to request it if you need it, whether it be for physical or mental health needs. But we're actually giving people the opportunity to take a break. And the last thing I'll say is from a leadership standpoint, we need to model the behavior that we're asking of the individuals who we're leading. So if we are working exorbitantly and our, our teams are not going to do it because they're going to think, well, my boss is working. I, I, I'm not going to take the time. So we need to model that behavior. Self-care is critical. And what we're dealing with right now. So I would actually say we need to identify what's essential to get done and um, maybe table some of the things that people feel like um, can wait until actually we are um, back to whatever would be normal after this. Right, so using this as an opportunity to focus. Dana, what would your view be? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I had a little video uh, on my YouTube recently about grace, about practicing grace and patience with yourself and with each other. And also understanding that even if people seem like they have a lot of resources or their organization is doing well, or they personally or their family is doing well, collective grief is going to hit us. And uh, again, I'm dealing with in my sector and my clients and my friends and, and colleagues where uh, according to a very recent, just last week's survey by volunteer match, 93% of all volunteer activities have been suspended or, or canceled or drastically changed. So that's a huge impact on the sector. And uh, that's a huge impact on the workforce. So a lot of paid staff who aren't furloughed, who are, you know, grateful to have their jobs, are feeling that extra stress, uh, are perhaps stepping in where, um, you know, unpaid team members were and volunteers were doing the work 
previously who must protect their health or, you know, their programs have been suspended and they're not allowed to have interactions in the office or with clients or whatever their role was. And really just allowing yourself and others to have that time and that patience while we are in triage and understanding that creating these priorities strategically, not just now in an immediate response of not giving into that panic, not giving into, oh my goodness, we have to cut our budget immediately or else. It's like, no, there's, it's actually a better return on investment to keep some sort of volunteer program engagement happening for the long term when we come back to, as Derek mentioned, this new normal. Nothing's going to be as it was before and we can make that for the better. We can make that for the better of our agencies, of being more efficient with our missions and being even more engaged with our community using this communication and transparency that many of the other panelists and guests have, have mentioned today. But yeah, it's a very, it's, people are panicked, they're afraid, they're sad, they're worried. And understanding that uh, we still have to have that strategic long-term vision of how we're using all of our team members and how we're incorporating them going forward. And there could be, this actually could be an opportunity for uh, volunteers who want to keep going to change roles and cross-train and take some of this office staff plate, being really careful, again, of your state and local laws about uh, where there's unions or things where, where um, unpaid staff can't take over for certain staff functions, but really start to be creative and innovative, even in virtual things of is there some day-to-day -day paperwork or research or something else or data entry that can be done now that just frees up what's what there is of your paid staff time and bandwidth to do more critical functions. Okay, great. Thank you. I, in terms of transferring responsibilities as well, I know that development staff are, are, are particularly under pressure now because events and outings that were planned for now or uh, over the next few weeks are all canceled. People are scrambling, trying to see if they can do something virtually. Uh, a lot of the income for the year was reliant on a successful event. And now these people are thinking, no, no, I can't do that, but what do I do? And the advice through marketing and, and fundraising, of course, is to not hold back, but re-engage all those donors. People are speaking to their foundation partners and other funders. Uh, and it's, it's a bit of a crazy time. <laughs> that doesn't seem like it's likely to uh, subside anytime soon. To what extent can non-developmental, non-development or fundraising staff participate in that. Brian, have you seen uh, that amongst folks that you know? You know, maybe I'm not quite as, as close to that, um, but, you know, you're engaging your volunteers and that type of thing. I, I'm going to leave it up to the rest of the panel if they'd like to comment, actually. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, oh, Jody, I'll ahead. offer, we, we hire um, tons of development officers, so, and some of our searches just started this week and are moving forward, so it's interesting um, people are still, you know, in the market for new development folks at this time. We're seeing a lot of support. You know, anyone who works at a non-profit is a development person. Everybody should, you know, always be representing the organization, always looking for potential donors and, you know, making people feel involved and part of an organization just by how they speak about it. So we're seeing a lot of development people right now with all staff do virtual coffee meetings with potential donors or, you know, doing um, YouTube videos about how their organization's impacting. We're seeing food banks 
all over the news right now talking vocally about the dollars that they're spending, how um, in March and in April or February, yeah, I think March and April so far they've spent over a million, which is, you know, double last year. And so we're seeing development in creative ways and we're seeing anyone in an organization say, look, you, need, you can support us and here's how to do it. So I, I think it's a really robust development market right now for anyone at a nonprofit, whether whether or not that's the key role. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and I'll just chime in that we also know that anyone who's been volunteering with your organization is at least 10 times more likely to also be a donor. And so if you're not already tapped into that talent pool or that resource, there you know could be volunteers who are in dire financial straits right now. There could be others who are untapped wells of generosity or want to know how else they can give if they cannot continue their their volunteer role. So it's not I don't think it's tone deaf to to do that ask or just again just be really transparent about what your financials look like and how people can step up uh, and support and those who can will self-select uh, for what they're able to give right now. Okay, good point. The last question we got have from the panel before we uh, open up to participants is again going back to the processes that may have been suspended or we're questioning whether we can continue in the current climate. Uh, so we talked about continuing with succession planning, so continuing with recruitment. The final question is about the process of preparing to shed some poorly performing staff. And how can that be achieved under these circumstances? And what are some of the barriers? Derek, do you want to comment on that first? It's interesting. Um, in my role, I spend um, a significant amount of time with our people, really um, leaning in on coaching and development and understanding how we can get how people can really lean in and show their talents. So in this particular time, I've had conversations directly about individuals who might have been on performance improvement plans who were at before um, COVID. And to be honest with you, I started with the conversation around empathy. Are there going to be ways that we can potentially lean in and maybe find an opportunity in this space with those individuals? It's very hard to deal with employee relations issues when you're in a pandemic. Like we have not ever experienced this. So definitely empathy first, but then also let's revisit and have conversations about how we got to this point where we were having conversations about performance. And um, when I think about performance, I think about how do we provide tools and opportunities for people to succeed. And so I, my conversation has been leaning into that. And at this space, one of the things I share with the executive directors that I support an individual would have to do something really detrimental that I would say that they would be need to be transitioned at this time. It would feel sort of heartless. So it really would have to be something really critical to move a person along at this time. So you're basically, in, in, in many respects, looking at the process in a slightly different way, which is uh, from a, an empathetic point of view, how can we absorb or repurpose this person's skills and expertise and, unless it's a really egregious situation? And then I'll give you a positive example. We have, uh, I have a team that I'm working with where they're having some really challenging team dynamics. Um, and it's actually fundraising. So we talked about fundraising and they've have, they were having challenges prior to. And this opportunity, um, I've really done some coaching around leveraging and how does each individual on that team support one another in this process? Because initially they were really frustrated, um, because their event got canceled. And how do we figure out how to make sure we meet our revenue goal and, just really digging in and relieving some of that that stress and pressure. And given that I'm a leader in the organization, one of the things I push on is 
what are we going to stop, start and continue? So I think that goes into performance as well. So a lot of this weaves together of, okay, what are our critical goals? What we really need to achieve? And you might find an opportunity with these individuals who were having some challenges previously. So that's exactly what I'm saying is try to look at it in a sort of a half glass full and, and really dig in and maybe leveraging opportunity. And empathy is key right now because everybody is just stressed um, beyond belief because of the unknown. Right. But but bring the sector specific nonprofit optimism to bear is what you're saying. You know me, Kev. There's always a way. <laughs> Arkella, did you want to comment? I was just going to, yeah, I agree. Everything that, that Derek um, has shared with us already and definitely just showing that empathy. Um, I had a group where they provide case management to local school districts and the uh, executive director reached out and was like, they're not, they're all working remote. No one is doing their case management notes and, and so they're not working. And then there was some performance issues. And so we facilitated a discussion via Zoom and just kind of really talked about what it meant to work remote and what were some of the expectations um, and really just kind of to get their buy-in and find out what was working and how we could move forward. Um, so everyone was was performing and and doing what they can do during this time, but definitely having those discussions and, and doing those one-on-one check-ins and, and some coaching as well. So that's why I'm finding to be very helpful. And I'm like Derek, of course, if they do something that's egregious enough, yes, they will be out the door. <laughs> right. You know, okay. I'm going to come to you, Dan, in just a second, but I just wanted to remind uh, participants that we're going to open up for questions in just a second and to uh, just type them okay. into the chat and we'll get to them uh, one by one. So, Dana, what, what's, what are some of the challenges for managing uh, volunteer performance? In, 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 in some cases, I suppose people wonder what volunteer performance means in, the, in this regard. Well, again, back to that team idea that it should be consistent standards of conduct and consequences for paid or unpaid staff. And, you know, I get people find out what I do. They're like, oh, what's it like to be in a in a profession where you can't fire anyone? It's like I fired volunteers all the time in my years. <laughs> I was the hammer, man. If you didn't do something right or it was egregious, like we're talking about something serious, like, yeah, you're out the door. But again, that, that consistency, that this consistency of empathy, the consistency of policy. And for any agencies uh, or, or professionals listening, uh, there's a great amount of resources to, if you have to start now, start now drafting a volunteer handbook, an internal program manual that's more, you know, behind the wizard's curtain of how those, those programs work. And you go to energizeinc.com or volunteer match. There's some great templates around that and a lot of great resources specific to handling the priorities of hiring, firing, adjusting programs right now are on volunteermatch.org and energizeinc.com. And we're doing a lot behind the scenes around that. But yeah, it's just people are people. And I have a system of the three C's of happy volunteers, but it's really your whole team of comfort, convenience, and connection. So if you have that with any of your team members, they're going to be good performers. They're going to be engaged and they're going to be inherently less risky to face to face with clients or handling money or whatever tasks they're doing with donors. And they're also going to be able to have that two-way communication and come to you when there is an issue, if there is a beef with another team member or something before it blows up to the level of an incident that's serious enough to warrant a firing. So ideally, your organization has the onboarding, the screening, the policies in place to 
prevent, to make a good match of all of their staff and volunteers into the correct roles so that uh, we don't see these problems. But yeah, don't be afraid to, you know, eat somebody out the door uh, per your policies if that's what's what it's come to. Okay. Jim, if I could just add. Yes, yes please do, Brian. Yeah. You know, one is um, uh, scenario planning under the circumstance. And I'm sure you're all doing it right now for your different organizations. But you've got to have a very serious view of what, how much money you expect to come in and what your operations are going to look like later. Uh, and we would recommend, you know, having a couple of models and have sensitivity analysis. Watch your revenue streams, how they're coming in compared to what your scenarios are outlining. And then know what levers you're going to pull at different points. Inevitably, it's going to impact headcount. It could be furloughs, you know, and delays where you're buying some time, but it may be reorganizations and staff reductions. And so when you do reorganizations, it kind of changes the landscape a bit, but I know poor performers are probably going to be jettisoned at that point. That's going to happen really across the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got to document things now in terms of poor performance and so on. But at points, you're going to have to maybe eliminate programs. And it's going to uh, it, it's going to have a broad impact, Derek. I love your comments and your enthusiasm with you, um, but I just know that and I'm hearing it from a lot of the nonprofits we work with. The landscape's going to be different, and the headcount's going to be different. You know, moving mm -hmm. forward, and we're going to have to take a hard look at programs. Yeah, you know, I'm just I just would like to add. So a lot of the organizations we work with, we are seeing they have to let people go. They're global, some of them. They're national. And so we're saying, again, what Derek said, do it with a lot of empathy, but also do it with training and help them. You know, th there's so many ways that you can empower people just because you're letting them go right now. I mean, you know, it could have to happen, but you can empower them and you can set them up with training and career coaching. And, you know, so there's so many ways to make someone feel good about it and, and also enhance their careers and future opportunities for them. Um, so it doesn't always have to be, you know, a negative, terrible situation. Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, we have our, uh, our first question. Uh, I'm going to call and unmute, uh, Glenn Munoz. Got a, speaking of, uh, skills and so on. Uh, Glenn, you've got a, a question about skills and, uh, talent. Uh, yeah, thanks, Kev. I'm, I'm curious, what are the sorts of skills and talents that's maybe most needed in the not for profit world? Obviously, we've talked about fundraising and ultimately everybody to one degree or another is a fundraiser, but beyond that, what do you guys find are the skills or the talents that are maybe most needed but difficult to come by for you guys? I'm glad to weigh in. Um, you know, and the skills needed right now, I mean, we've created completely new interview guides. Uh, you know, what we're looking for in leaders now is probably different than two months ago. I think the, the critical skills, are, and there's dozens, but I'd say adaptability, being able to pivot pretty quickly. I'd say learning agility the ability to learn new things and apply them to new situations. Um, and I would say storytelling, which is really, you know, communication, but really being able to, to move one person and move 5,000 people and being able to get up and tell the story and, and be committed and have passion. So, you know, there's, there's dozens, but those are always, you know, the authenticity is critical. But if somebody cannot be adaptable and if somebody does not have learning agility, they, they typically won't go far for leadership goals. And, and Jody, just to, just to confirm, and we have a lot of folks, you know, in the, in the nonprofit world, we're, we're constantly reminding ourselves that really it is just a tax status, but there is some ethos at times different about nonprofits. So what you were just talking about, uh, learning agility, adaptability, and storytelling, 
to what extent are, uh, is, uh, are those requirements different to what your colleagues at Corn Ferry who focus on the for-profit sector uh, are finding? How, how much distinction is there? They're the same. And so I'm glad you said that, Kev. Uh, 501c3 is how you file your taxes. It's not how you run a business. And so we believe nonprofits, you know, the difference is the mission. The difference is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more about people or a cause. And, and that's truly the only differentiation. I mean, we're constantly moving people from industry over to nonprofit and a lot of them become some of our best leaders. Um, you know, we track them through the years. They've done incredible things. So I, I'd say the mission alignment is the only, and, and the salary, right? So I won't leave that out. But the mission alignment and the salary is the biggest difference. And we see people who, kids out of college, you know, they've already made their mark in industry. A lot of them tell us they can afford now to go do what they're passionate about and what they care about, you know, and that's why a lot of people at a certain point in their career transition over to nonprofit leadership. Okay. Uh, if I can add, Kevin. Yes, please, Brian. You know, Jody, I agree with you. It's, it's, you need good, broad leaders. When we do succession planning, this is the very top of the pyramid. There's an interesting statistic that in the corporate world for CEOs, two-thirds of CEOs get promoted from within. In the nonprofit world, only 40% of CEOs get pr promoted from within. More often than not, boards go outside to hire their, their CEOs. And so you have to ask the question, what is, what are you missing? if you're not promoting a person from within. And the things that we tend to see tend to be, let's say someone who's a great program leader, they may not have the relationship with the board to have the board confidence. A CEO might have manage that relationship and that lieutenant doesn't have it. Uh, second, financial acumen. You've got to be able to talk the numbers, deal with auditors, and get your businessy board people comfortable with your financial capabilities. And then the third thing is fundraising. That if you've not fundraised, you might be able to do it, but people, the board might just be a little hesitant. Can this person raise the money and have the relationships with the foundations that they need? And that's, that's often a particular issue because it's a different, a different type of income generation than a lot of for-profit people are, are used to. It's not direct sales. Uh, Glenn, did you want to follow up on any, on any of that? Yeah. I, I, folks kind of started to get to it. My, my kind of question number two was, the transferable skills from the for-profit world to the not-for-profit world and where where you folks think somebody looking to make that transition maybe needs to add skills or add some talents in order to be a more suitable fit. So, Glenn, I would say sit on a board. If someone is not um, involved in a nonprofit and they want to make the transition, your best bet is to get involved with a board, understand those dynamics. And often people who sit on boards are the people that become the executive director of an organization, you know, take on a, a key role, whether it's a treasurer or, you know, event committee, executive committee. Those are the people that when we host search committees and we're doing a search, always one of them raises their hands. And so, you know, it's just a great in. It's a great way to get more involved and see if you do want to spend more time at an organization and eventually go for a leadership role. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, Jody. That's great advice. Sorry, and I'll just chime in that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Thanks, Kev. Yeah. And let me just chime in. Uh, I think it's obvious, but I uh, say it out loud that most board members are volunteers there. And that's the highest level of volunteer engagement is board development and succession and legacy and leadership development. And I've also seen with many of my clients that 
they're more successful when they have a director of volunteer services that's sitting on that executive committee and that leadership team, and that helps the strategic planning of the capacity of the agency that the director of that program has more headcount, has more physical people typically in their programs than any other staff member. So to look at that piece, uh, if you're not used to framing it that way of breaking down these silos and saying it's not just a development director or someone from the board that can be the new executive director from inside that might be your director of volunteer services. And I've seen that work really, really well in particularly food agencies and food security agencies here in the Bay Area in the last five or ten years. Uh, we got uh, an input from Karina again, who mentions that local universities often have certificates of nonprofit governance. There's some continuing or executive education style stuff of way of getting into that local network. Yeah. I wanted to uh, move on to the next question from Bashara. Bashara, can you hear us? Yes. So my question is is focused on talent, but mainly with all of the changes around the COVID-19, there's been a number of state policy changes and federal policy changes that impact both those that your nonprofit might be serving, but also your own employees. I happen to work in an advocacy role, but it's actually not the same kind of function that would um, actually, sorry, that's my dog, that would support, uh, you know, how policy impacts my organization. It's more of advocacy for our participants. So, and a lot of nonprofits don't even have a policy function in the organization. And so when you're thinking about how those changes are impacting your nonprofit and those you, your organization serves, who in your organization should be trained or to train the, train to track those kinds of policy impacts and who, where should that function live? It sounds like one for Arkella. I will. Yeah. So a lot of times on the um, policy, definitely what I've seen or experienced is the executive director, of course, being on the forefront of those changes. And a lot of times the grant management, uh, grant director, sometimes they uh, will follow up on the policy as well. So it just depends on the structure of the organization. But typically, based on my experience, I've seen the executive director and the grants manager or director are the folks who will kind of really review the policy and disseminate that information out throughout the organization and update the board as well. Sometimes it's the, the chief financial officer. Sometimes if it's, again, around financials, they will be the ones that's going to be the keeper of that information or develop those policies. It's been my experience for those three key people. And, and Derek, is that something that in the sort of federated structure of City Year that is done at the national headquarters in, in Boston and, and rolled out then to the local units? Yes, we're very fortunate. We have a policy team covering all aspects of policy from education policy, what has been mentioned in this conversation. And the other thing I would suggest, if you do not have that individual as a position, but locally, like in Cleveland, we have the Center for Community Solutions. There's organizations who lead in that space. So as Arkella said, if there's someone on staff who can take that role and lean into those organizations. Most cities, uh, most states have those type organizations. Like uh, City Year, we are an affiliate of Voices for National and Community Service. So we lead out on AmeriCorps and things of that nature. So I just think there's opportunities to align yourself with other organizations who lead in that space and provide that uh, expertise. And Jody, where do you see these in terms of job descriptions and expectations from the search perspective? 
Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and and I don't have an answer for it right now. I think that they're going to have to implement it. I think I would look to organizations to have virtual learning, something to get people up to speed pretty quickly, because I I don't know how much it's going to evolve. I mean, the thing is, we don't know if we're looking at one more month of this or five more months, you know. So without knowing, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some sort of virtual tool to get people up to speed quickly. Right. Okay. We've fulfilled our, our hours obligation of a nonprofit problem solver. And I want to thank the, the panel for joining us and providing such in-depth insight and the participants for uh, listening and asking good questions. And I would uh, encourage you guys to convene again in a month's time on May 6th and June 3rd. The same panel is again talking about talent and staff development for nonprofits and for the next Every Wednesday at 1, we will be having the Nonprofit Problem Solver call, but with different topics. So next week is about programs and services. We then follow up with marketing and fundraising. And finally, board and strategy. So if those apply to you or you're interested, please join us. Same time, same sandbox. You can always email me with questions, comments, feedback, and uh, and then hope to see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to episode one of the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast around talent and staff development. I'd like to thank the expert panel this week. That included Arkella Hargrove, Dana Litwin, Brian Broadbent, Derek Fulton, and Jody Weiss. I'd also like to thank Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio for producing this episode. Thank you. You can join Future Conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.